Before we get to our show, here is a podcast we think you're going to love. Hey, we're Renee. And Adrian. And we are the Outlandish Historians. We're sisters, nerds, and lovers of all things history. Except bell bottoms. Keep that in the past. Come hang out with us on the Dear World of History podcast, where we'll frolic through time as we chat and geek out over the good, the bad, and the downright ugly history of the world. We promise you don't have to be a licensed historian to travel through time with us. Maritime disasters? Check. Historical serial killers? Check. Glamorous and petty royals? Check and check. You can find us almost anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Dear Historians and Instagram at Outlandish Historians. So chug that drink me bottle and come on down the rabbit hole. It's going to be a wild ride. Hello and welcome, five listeners, friends and enemies. We're glad to have you. It's perhaps it's you. An unofficial Unsolved Mysteries rewatch podcast. That's right. It's unofficial and we watch a show and we try to solve mysteries, but mostly we eat snacks and wish we were taking naps. <laughs> That's the sum up. That should be our very long like tagline to our podcast. <laughs> Someone commented the other day, like, amazingly consistent. And I was like... I'm glad. <laughs> That's not necessarily good. I was just about to say, is that good? consistently that bad? Or like, I guess. Okay, thanks. Do you have any updates? Mm, no. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. I swear, like, <clears throat> you know how when something's like right after the fact, you have a bunch of stuff you wish you had said. Oh, and yeah, then, all the time. I feel like right after I we're done recording, again. I'm always like, oh, I need to mention blah, 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 blah. And then by the time we actually are recording again, because of course I didn't write it down because I'm a dummy, I know. Then I'm like, what is Unsolved Mysteries? <laughs> oh, yeah. The what thing we it? have a podcast about. I forgot. Yeah, I don't think I have anything. Last night I was watching the movie Batman Returns, which I love very <laughs> deeply. It's a weird, wonderful movie. And... I was thinking about how I maybe like a year or so ago, I was at like someone's house that I don't know very well. We were outside, we were having a lovely time, and they sort of mentioned like, oh, my wife had never seen any of the Batman movies, so we, you know, we had a marathon, we watched all of them, and I was like, oh, I love Batman Returns so much, right? Like, I'm all excited. And she just goes, that movie is disgusting. <laughs> disgusting? You know what? It a little bit is. <laughs> But in like a great way. I don't. It's dark. Sure. There's a really, really great joke that involves biting someone's nose. Okay. And it's still perhaps the funniest thing that I've <laughs> ever seen in my life. But really, she was like, she just looked. I was like, that's disgusting. Mm. And I almost was just like, well, it's been real. I just like <laughs> <laughs> just because my natural instinct, and maybe you can relate, is to is to like go too hard. Sure. And be like, no, here's all of my thoughts and feelings. Yeah, we have an Unsolved Mysteries podcast, so well, can see, definitely relate. But I'm old now, and believe it or not, I have mellowed in my old age, <laughs> and I'm not nearly as intense as I used to be, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. But as I was watching Batman Returns, my favorite Christmas movie, by the way, and yes, 
that's not me being like ironic. It's it takes place at Christmas. It's very Christmassy. A major plot point revolves around mistletoe. It's fine. <laughs> that I was thinking, oh, when I was in my twenties, I had these friends that we would go to the movies, but then they wouldn't want to talk about them afterwards. What? Why wouldn't you just go by yourself then? <sighs> and just how unnatural that is for me. Because I could probably have a podcast where I went through Batman Returns frame by frame <laughs> and talked about every frame of that movie. Let us know on Twitter if that's something you want. <laughs> Do you want me to make a Batman Returns podcast where I, can I tell analyze? You it's not going to be a Patreon episode because I don't think I can do that. <laughs> no, it's going to be really Liz could intense. Have a separate podcast. It's going to be a very intense experience. A frame by frame Batman <laughs> Returns podcast. It's not just a I can tell you, there's not another one out there. <laughs> But just, like, how unnatural a friendship of people who want to go to the movies but then want to leave and not talk about it. That makes no sense. Because you can't talk during the movie, so why are you even going together? I never figured it out. Huh. And we're just not friends now. Okay, well, this makes sense. And I was just thinking about, like, yeah, of course. Why did it take me so long to figure out that was such a... If you're spending time, like, regular time with someone that makes you feel bad about yourself, maybe don't do that. This is some very positive life advice. <laughs> it took me, like, a podcast. really long time to figure that out somehow. So you're I'm trying to... You're not the only one. Sh- you're just... That's everyone in their I 20s. I think when you're young, you just really try to make stuff work. Yeah, well, and also, you, it's hard to make friends at any age. People always talk about it's hard to make friends in college. It's hard to make friends out of college. It's just always hard to make friends. So I feel like when you have friends, you want to, like, hang on to them. And then at a certain point in your life, you realize, I would just rather not have friends. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. Where it's like, maybe this is actually worse. Many years to figure that out. So what you described was just everyone in their 20s. I think that's true. And I think particularly for introverted people, it's like, you're like, well, I've already, I've already got, oh, I've I've already invested so much into this friendship. I've already put myself out there. I've already gotten to know them. Yeah. I can't do it again. Yeah. Like, that's just too hard. And it's honestly, it's fucking better to cut those ties and maybe you'll find someone that wants to start an Unsolved Mysteries <laughs> podcast with you, well, but not a Batman Returns frame-by-frame frame podcast. you got to draw the line somewhere. And you know what? That's more than fair. And I respect <laughs> that boundary. <laughs> because who in their right mind would want to do that? No one, because I'm not in my right mind. <laughs> That's my thought Let us know. for today. What is that? Is that the fringe? You don't know that your fucking fridge is so loud until you start a podcast <laughs> in your what should be your dining room and you don't have a door between that and your kitchen. Struggle is real, folks. Oh, okay. Okay, are we ready to talk about I think so. not Batman Returns? This is uh, season mysteries. four, episode 11. This is a real nothing burger of an episode. Except the first one. But to kind of attempt to spice things up a little bit, I watched this yesterday with my mom. So I have a few of her comments. I can't wait. To sprinkle in because I was like, wow, there's not a whole lot going on here. There's a bunch of nothing happening in this episode. Although I will say the first segment was decent. Yeah, no, it's not bad. I wish it was in a better episode because it deserved better. Yeah, I agree. So this is The Last Love. Uh, Bar and it is the oh also Robert Stag celebrates that this is they have now solved a hundred cases thanks to listener tips pretty impressive and I somehow felt like I was involved in that 
even you though we're swell of pride even though we're doing the podcast now and we had absolutely zero to do with solving a hundred of those mysteries i was like oh this is such a great thing <laughs> i'm a part of something that i'm involved in <laughs> it's like no actually this has absolutely nothing to do with you but good on robert stack i guess good on robert stack i guess <laughs> <laughs> he right. watches over all of us and he wants what's best for us and good on him yeah we're looking for the mother of barbara smith and barbara ratner that's right two barbaras one mom all right <laughs> <laughs> the phrasing on that could have been better i don't know it depends what you're into. <laughs> it's not for me it's not a title i would pick out of the adult video store but when i'm behind the beaded curtain <laughs> At the local family video. I told Liz I was going to be delirious today, and it is coming She warned true. me, and I'm having, like, an extreme lazy day. Whatever you're thinking of, no lazier than that. <laughs> so this podcast is going to be extra delirious. It's going to be interesting. We promise that whatever you're thinking, it's worse. <laughs> it's worse than that. That's the perhaps it's you guarantee. <laughs> you guarantee yes the perhaps since you guarantee is no matter how bad you think it is it's actually worse put that on a t-shirt we're surprisingly consistent <laughs> two barbers one two, mom all right tell us the tale the erotic tale of two barbers one mom okay barbara smith reed was born in july 1940 and grew up in los angeles california in the 1940s when she was five one of her classmates said that she was ado- adopted adopted and this was supposedly her friend who was like taunting her in her driveway i know this, this barbara needed your life advice yeah yeah back when she was five i i mean i needed that advice back when i was a five too and it's just it's hard advice to take it, it is so yeah when your friends are straight up bullying you about being adopted her parents Which really you would think the response would be just like so but that doesn't work when you're a kid i can't really explain it there's yeah. lots of things kids make fun of you for that you should just be like and right. what's your point but, but they still do because there's a thing about bullies i don't know how they do this they find your weakness mm-hmm. they have a an intuitive this this makes me believe in psychic powers bullies they find the like tiniest fracture in your foundation and then they just like poke at it chisel in mm-hmm. on it so that you end up bursting the tears in your own driveway yeah pretty sad when you're five yeah it's quite sad think about it bullies also you're not allowed to listen to this podcast <laughs> no bullies allowed go listen to joe rogan or some shit yeah her parents had told her that she was adopted but it wasn't until the classmate ridiculed her that she decided she wanted to meet her birth mother yeah because well, suddenly it seemed like a problem and it's not yeah but now this kid's making her feel terrible yeah she had very loving parents so but now she feels like you know she's not wanted or she wasn't wanted by her birth mother all these things so and her she's like telling her her father her adoptive father like you know my family's still alive why won't you tell me yeah because they told her that her birth mother wasn't alive okay this is, is super weird the, they're like true. you know how we said doctor the family doctor was gonna come over to talk to you which what this is bizarre so he like comes in the parents are not in the room and he sits on her bed and he seems kind of excited to tell her your dad died in an accident or died in the war your dad died and then your mom died giving birth to you well i 
hope that answers all your questions. <laughs> Bye, five-year-old. Yeah. yeah. This is a very strange thing that maybe made more sense in the 1940s. I don't know. But she was so despondent after she had been bullied by her supposed friend, believing that her birth mother didn't want her, that she was refused to get out of bed. She was very upset. And so her parents called this doctor who supposedly delivered her. Uh, this was going to answer her questions. And he literally was just like, your parents died. Well, <laughs> hope that helps. But he seems like, maybe this is just his tone of talking to children, but he sounds like excited they're dead. A little bit. This is something my mom pointed out. Like, why is he saying it like that? <laughs> I don't know. Like, no, your mom died. <laughs> I was like, are you a ghoul at a haunted carnival? I don't understand. <laughs> did I just open the whole exchange is bizarre. Did I just open a cursed puzzle box and you <laughs> appeared before me to to give me an ominous message? Like this was supposed to make her feel better. I can't even think of anything that would make me feel worse. <laughs> don't worry. It's not that your parents didn't want you. They're just dead. It's just that everyone you ever love and ever know will die. Everyone on Earth will die, including you. Good night. <laughs> Thanks, Doc. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Great Dr. home visit. Dr. Sultan, which also kind of sounds like an evil villain name, but whatever. It kind of does. So it actually, really, <laughs> it sounds both made up and like he would live at a haunted carnival <laughs> yep. from Scooby-Doo. So Dr. Maurice Sultan left his haunted <laughs> carnival to come visit little Barbara in her bed. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad this is no longer standard practice to have doctors come to your house and give children bad news. <laughs> Just call Dr. Sultan up and he'll come tell him that people die. Come find the creepiest man in town to come tell your five-year-old before bed. (laughs) Alright, so he came to visit her. He said that her real father died in World War II and that her mother had died while giving birth to her. So not only is your mother dead, but it's your fault. Yeah, exactly. Way to really cushion that blow, kid. Which also, spoiler, not true. Yeah, also, so it's he's, a big fat lie. So he's giving her this, like, unnecessary guilt. Yep. This isn't, like, part of an ongoing therapeutic process. This is literally <laughs> just lies that are given to her in the worst fashion, and then no follow-up. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. Enjoy. For some reason, little five-year-old Barbara was certain that her birth parents were actually still alive. Finally, when she was a teenager, her father gave her the adoption papers. She learned that her mother's name was Victoria Bumgardner, and she found no indication that she had ever died in childbirth, because she hadn't. In 1957, Barbara met Steve Reed. They fell in love and soon became engaged. Um, so, one yeah, one day... They visited a friend of his, named Bar- also named Barbara, Barbara Ratner. She was stunned by a picture of his sister, uh, Barbara, and felt that they looked very similar. The women met and soon became friends. They were, like, best friends. Yeah, they, like, immediately bonded. They had a ton of stuff in common beyond just having the same name and looking alike and, you know... Their friends, their uh, kids referred to the other Barbara as Aunt Barbara, and they spent every waking moment together. They were together. allowed to go to the movies and talk about the movie afterwards, and it just built this really great friendship. <laughs> it did. Uh, they also married two men who were 
themselves best friends. Ugh, so handy. You know, Barbara Smith Great was idea. told that Barbara Ratner was also adopted, but Barbara Ratner didn't know any of this. And this was never explained in the episode how Barbara Smith found out that Barbara Ratner was also adopted. Yeah, like, that's who told super her? weird. Samantha, if you find out something like that about me, could you please tell me? I promise I will. Because that's really odd. I don't even know. And who would tell her? I don't, I don't know. I really don't understand. She like overheard it or it something? never explained in the episode but no, anyway that's the real mystery honestly in 1966 barbara ratner's mother passed away while searching through her papers she was shocked to find that she was also adopted she found like a like a big box that had a bunch of mementos from her like early childhood and in it was a bunch of adoption papers she was even more shocked to find that her birth mother's last name was also bumgardner Barbara Ratner immediately called Barbara Smith and told her that they were actually sisters. It didn't exactly go down that way. What happened is she called Barbara Smith and was like, what was your birth mother's name again? And she goes, Bum- Victoria Bumgardner. And Barbara Ratner was like, you're never going to believe this, but I just found adoption papers for myself and my mother's name is Victoria Bumgardner. And then the other Barbara is like, yeah, gotta I, go. I gotta go. <laughs> Gotta process this she information. She some time to think about that. She was like, "I'm sorry, what?" Okay, I'm hanging up now. But during that time, she called up her old doctor, Mr. Dr. Sultan, who was still hanging out at the Haunted Carnival. <laughs> you still creeping out children wherever you went. And she was like, can you tell me more about my mother? Does she have another child? And it turns out she did have a younger daughter. And she s- still had, like, she still had custody of Barbara Smith when Barbara Ratner was adopted. It's really not clear what happened, but eventually they were adopted out to different Yeah, families. somehow, okay, so this woman came to town that was both of her mother. She ended up that Dr. Sultan was her doctor. So he had given birth to both of them. So he knew this the whole time and also arranged for both of their adoptions. But whatever the, like, details of that situation were no only he knows and he's not telling and he's not telling and then he dies and all of his records are like burnt he burns them before he dies so they don't get their hands on them which at first when i first heard that i was like what a fucking dickhead but barbara smith is very forgiving she said his duty was to protect his patient our mother was his patient and i'm sure she didn't want anyone to know so he she thinks that he was doing his doctorly doctorly duty duty, yeah but he went so far as to burn all of his records before he died so that they wouldn't find out who she was. Um, yeah, and all we know about Victoria Bumgardner is that she went into a hospital. When she was pregnant with Barbara Ratner, she went into a hospital. She was an unwed mother. And then the baby was immediately adopted out. But we're also told that she had another baby at home, so I'm not really sure exactly what happened. But needless to say, each of them were adopted to different families, but different families that live, like, down the street from each other. Yeah, they were only, like, five minutes apart or five miles apart. Yeah. And I think the reason it's confusing is because Unsolved Mysteries doesn't really have all the details. Like, they don't. The, the, it's sketchy. It's sketchy. But, yeah, they're, so they're adopted out by families that live, like, down the street from each other. They're both given the name Barbara Ann. Their middle name is the same. I think their mothers have, like, the same... Their adopted mothers have the same name. Named Rose or Rosie. Yeah. So, a lot of spooky coincidences in the story. Um... But they, yeah, they met by happenstance and became best friends. So 
now that they know that they are indeed sisters, they are thrilled by this because they've always felt like sisters anyway, but now it's official, which is sort of like the coolest thing to happen. Yeah, that's something that would happen in like a book for a fourth grader. Right. This idea of having your like long lost sister or your long lost twin or something and it's like it's like your best friend. Yeah. It's yeah. like, no, I'm really Auntie Barbara and the kids were like, Okay, whatever. So they confronted Dr. Sultan in 1969, who told them very little about their birth mother. When he died in 1989, he had all of his records destroyed. The women learned that their mother was close to him, so he protected her identity. The women then contacted the Children's Home Society of California. They learned about how their 23-year-old mother, Victoria Bumgardner, came to Los Angeles to visit Dr. Sultan, who arranged Barbara Smith's adoption. Fifteen months later, she returned to Dr. Sultan, who arranged Barbara Ratner's adoption. They grew up just miles apart, both named Barbara Ann. And now they're looking for their mother. Uh, The result of this is that it is solved. At the end of the segment, we hear that they um, had since been reunited with her. However, because she had not told anyone about having had two children while single, the broadcast was not allowed to show their reunion. The women, however, thanked the viewers for allowing them to finally meet her. Sadly, Barbara Smith Reed died on December 28, 2013. So they had a lot of time together as sisters. They did. And it's sort of like the sweetest story. I'm not surprised we don't get a reunion. That's kind of a family matter and sort of none of our business. She was clearly very private about the whole thing their mother was. And I'm, I mean, it's not an ideal situation. It's not a great time to be pregnant on your own. So no. I'm sure that was, I don't know. She didn't really want to talk about it, but I'm glad that they were able to find her and get some closure on that. Yeah. Um, Here's my mom's notes. That this is not a mystery. <laughs> it's just a coincidence. She seemed kind of disappointed that there wasn't really a mystery. Okay. Even I though, mean, she's technically right. Even though it was a good story. She said it was strange and that basically she would rate it high solely based on the clothes. The segment I, she I would give I agree with everything your mom said. She would give a three out of five Robert Stacks okay. for this segment. She, well, she's a, she's a hard critic. I, it was lower than I thought. And she yeah. said she only rated it that high because of the costume. Oh, okay. See, I but I always love a lost love, so. It's just kind of a sweet story. And it's nice to have something where no one died except people's parents. Well. <laughs> In a, in, a, in a tale. But, I mean, um, we don't know for sure. They lied about her mother, the father. I don't even oh, know if they... that's true. Who, they, who Dr. knows? Dr. Sultan might not have even Actually, known right. who the father was. That's probably a total lie, so no one died. My mom uh, commented on Robert Stack's outfit that he wears a double-breasted suit, quote, better than most. <laughs> Which is not really a compliment, but... You can interpret it as such if you if you'd like. You know he's surprisingly consistent. He is surprisingly consistent. That's what I would say about Robert Sack. <laughs> All right, I have the next mystery, which is an unexplained death. It is the case of Jeffrey Digman. Is it unexplained though? You know, I think it kind of is actually. Okay, okay, we might disagree on this one. Okay, proving that we are not long lost sisters. <laughs> If we were, we would agree on everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know how I would want a frame by frame Batman. <laughs> No. I wouldn't expect anyone to want that except me. What if you randomly met someone on the street that also wanted to make a frame by frame? I would think they were lying to just get in my house. <laughs> I wouldn't believe it. That's probably fair. That they were like, I just want to talk about all the same things you do ad nauseum. I'd be like, do you though? Are you just going to slip my this throat is, as soon as you step yeah, in the door? This is too good to be true. Yeah, you're right. You're here to steal my Pyrex and I know it. Okay. Jeffrey Digman. 
he this takes place uh, in San Diego, California, and also a little bit Puerto Rico. He was promoted to captain in the Marines by age 28, which is impressive, I guess. Um, <laughs> look, I don't know how the this Marines not work. Impressed, clearly. So in June 1998, he and another officer bought a house together while they were stationed in San Diego. Okay. So him and another man buy a house together. They also take the time of this segment to point out to us that he is a very neat person. Keep in mind that this is okay. airing in 1991. Okay. Is unsolved, of information. Are unsolved mysteries trying to hint anything about the sexuality of Je- Jeffrey Digman to us mm. without coming right out and saying something? Mm. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say probably. Because why tell us that he's neat? That has absolutely nothing to do with anything. Yeah. Okay. Though at one point he has a girlfriend, but still. Uh, Okay, in November, he's transferred to Puerto Rico. And according to his friends and family, he wasn't too happy about the move, but he eventually settled in and started dating Lucy Garcia, who was a accountant at the base. So after Christmas, he returns to San Diego because he has two weeks leave to spend at home and he still has that house there. So he was scheduled to fly back to Puerto Rico on January 22nd, which was Super Bowl Sunday. Okay, so at halftime, a neighbor saw him return home. His we- his roommate had gone to Vegas for the weekend for his girlfriend. And at 6 p.m., neighbors heard what they thought was the sound of a car backfiring. Four hours later, at 10 p.m., his roommate returns home and is surprised to find Jeffrey's car still in the driveway because his flight to Puerto Rico would have been scheduled to leave a little bit before that so he should have already left and probably he's like coming home like oh good i'll have the house to myself wait what the hell's jeffrey's car doing there yep now my mom found the next part highly suspicious okay he cuts home he notices the lights are still on that jeffrey's car is still there he goes and gets his elderly neighbor despite being a marine to go into the house with him. Isn't it the house him and Jeffrey own together? Yes. Why would it be strange for him, his car to be there and the lights to be on? Because he thought his flight would have already left. But also, it's fucking winter. Flights get canceled and rescheduled all the time. All the people time. just miss their flights. Yeah. Wouldn't that be your first thought? Yes. So he goes and he gets his neighbor, who at least according to the reenactment is much older than him. And also probably not a fucking Marine <laughs> to go into the house with him. Together, they discover Jeffrey's body. That is highly suspicious. Why? If he actually thinks there's a problem, why wouldn't he just use the neighbor's phone to call the police or call the base yeah. or something else? Why would he say, old man, come into this house that I think something dangerous might be? And also, why would that be dangerous? Why isn't it just... Why would you even assume it would be dangerous? Right. Unless you know you're going to find something in there. Yep. Hmm. In Jeffrey's bedroom, they found him dead with a single single bullet to the right temple. His alcohol level was very high at 0.24. Which they called like three times the the legal limit. Yeah. Is it really illegal if you're not driving? No. Just in your house? I feel like... I can't tell if that phrase is used to help you understand how drunk that is or to make it just sound more salacious. If it's just say three times the legal limit, it's not illegal to be drunk. So Certainly not just in your house. Yeah, he's not doing anything illegal. 
He's just drinking. Right. On Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> How dare he? Wow. <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah. I mean, do, do I drink on Super Bowl Sunday? No, because I'm crafting. But for many a person. Having some beers. Yeah. I don't know. That's what dudes do, um, I guess. Look at this guy. Look at the photo of this guy. You think this guy drinks on Super Bowl Sunday? Absolutely. No matter how needy he is? Okay. The authorities ruled it a suicide after speaking with his friends and acquaintances. They also stated that forensic evidence proved that the death was suicide. They completed a a test for gunshot residue, which, as we've discussed, not very reliable, on Jeffrey's hands. The test indicated that he had fired a gun using his right hand. The coroner and the Naval Investigative Service also ruled his death a suicide. Jeffrey's family, however, is convinced he was actually murdered. Wasn't he left-handed? Yes. So, what? (laughs) He has a bullet wound to his right temple. He has gunshot residue on his right hand. He's fucking left-handed. I'm sure he's trained in the use of firearms from being Marine. Why would he use his less dominant hand to shoot himself in the right temple. Don't know. So his parents are so convinced that he's actually murdered that they, this is creepy, take his bedroom furniture from the crime scene to their house, set it up in his old childhood bedroom, and recreate the crime scene. Yeah. Because they are so dedicated to proving their son was actually murdered. And I will say that the reenactment of them showing the bullet trajectory and how you would have to sit to shoot yourself in the head at that angle, it's like you have to twist your body into this very unnatural position, and also that's not his dominant hand. So I was like, yeah, I don't I don't think he did that. Why they had to keep the furniture there after that point. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I I don't know. We have a lot of questions about this segment. Why did Unsolved Mysteries think it was a good idea to show his dead body? Yeah. That's a question I had. Yeah. Caught me off guard a little bit. So they point out that since he was left-handed, he would have to hold the gun upside down. And if the position that he shot himself for the gun trajectory to line up, he would have fallen forwards and not back onto the bed, which is how his body was found. Because if he's twisting his body... I don't know, they show you in the reenactment, but you can kind of imagine. He sort of would have to be sort of tilting. His center of gravity would be at the edge of the bed. He would have fallen forward. Yeah. He wouldn't have fallen back, but he's found fallen back. They also note that there's a blood trail falling down from his ear, which suggests that he was upright for at least six seconds after the shooting, giving the blood enough the time to drip from gravity down instead of at the angle of being... On the bed, if you can understand what I'm saying. There's also a a smear on the blood, on the bed sheets in blood that could not be explained. Ten months after his death, his parents requested that his body be exhumed and a second autopsy performed. Naval Hospital in San Diego performed the second autopsy. They found two injuries on his body that were not mentioned in the original report. However, the new report stated that the injuries were insignificant and did not mean he was murdered. His parents' theory is that before being transferred to San Diego, he was in charge of the San Diego Marine Drug Test Unit, and that he did that for several months, and that he had been annoyed or angry that people would test positive for drug use and nothing would happen, okay? Jeffrey's kind of a narc. So, 
maybe he was like, what's the point of any of this? That right, people would test positive for drugs and then nothing would happen. Right. So he had started like collecting people's information, like who was testing positive and nothing was being done about it to like quote unquote prove he was doing his job. This information was kept in a safe in his bedroom that somehow his mom was like once looking in and that I found super weird, but whatever. <laughs> After the, like, authorities clean up the crime scene and take the evidence, the safe has been emptied, and that information just never comes back. Also, when his uh, place in Puerto Rico is being packed up, his girlfriend specifically remembers putting in this, like, green journal and handing it to whoever was packing up that was just, like, I don't know, his journal of his thoughts and feelings his his drug narcs. Yeah, the him going, oh, I can't believe so-and-so tested positive for drugs and nothing happened. She recalls the, the journal being intact. By the time it gets back to his family, a large portion of pages have been cut out. And they don't know what was on those pages. I'm sure you could argue that it was something the military Wanted. needed to keep secret, yeah. that that's unrelated to his death. Maybe it's like military stuff yeah but maybe it's suspicious regardless yeah at some point the his death is changed from being ruled from a from suicide to inconclusive in the fall of 1991 the armed forces reviews the autopsy yeah that's i'm sorry in 1991 it was changed from suicide to undetermined unfortunately nothing comes of this there are no known suspects there his parents has their suspicions but there's really nothing they could do about it jeffrey's father eventually passed away in 2014 at the age of 89 there's a little bit more information on this there's a couple articles but it's mostly about the family trying to find answers and not being able to find answers yeah there's not really any information so what do you think about this case you know, it hadn't occurred to me watching it that the roommate was acting suspicious, but that was that's suspicious. My mom found the roommate highly suspicious and wanted to know if he had been investigated, which there's no evidence that he was. And I mean, there there's no that's all we have to go off of was that one Right. Why did he get the neighbor before going in the house? But if you're then who would you look at? The person you're living with? Right. Regardless of their, the nature of their relationship, the person you're living with is going to be more likely to kill you. And I don't know, people testing positive for drugs and having no consequences? Like, there's no consequences. It's not like... It didn't seem like anyone was acting on his information. Yeah, I... So why murder him? I feel uh, like that it? maybe caught the parents' attention, but I really doubt that that's why he was murdered. I do think his death is suspicious, and I think... That maybe if the parents had gotten, if if the military had been a little more forthcoming about his death, if they felt like it had been better investigated, maybe they would have been able to move on and not had the scene of his death literally recreated in their house, which doesn't seem very healthy. No. Um, I feel very bad for them. And I, I do see why they're suspicious. I don't know. I, yeah, I guess I would say I wish I knew more about the situation with the roommate. My mom was like, do you think he gets the house? <laughs> yeah but my dad was like no his house the half of the house would go into a trust and like da 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 <laughs> I, I guess i don't think he committed suicide because of the left-handed thing the left-handed thing was yeah but it doesn't really seem like they looked 
it didn't do it too good. That's unsatisfying. Um, there was a couple mustaches in this. Police officer, maybe? Oh, Henry. Who had like a, it kind of looked like he had just eaten something sour, which is kind of what his face looked like. <laughs> uh, was it a mustache like this? Maybe. Maybe that was it. My mom I said think- that it perfectly matched his, the, the angle of his eyebrows. Okay. Did she give it a name? Uh, my dad called it the Outlaw Caterpillar. <laughs> All right, I like it. There's also, uh, my parents like this mustache better, but I liked it less. It was a very white mustache that covered most of the upper lip. Okay. Which I found unsettling. And then called it Mr. No Lip. That was a forensic expert named Steven. Yeah, it's unsettling when the mustache covers the lip and makes it look like you only have one lip. It made him look kind of like a ventriloquist dummy or something. Yeah, I don't like, like that. Like his jaw is just like moving into his face, you know? Yeah, I don't like that. So I actually, I would reward it to neither of them. Mm, yeah. I think there is no, none of these mustaches are very valuable. I wish I would have grabbed a screenshot of a guy that looked like he just ate a warhead. <laughs> My mom read it, thought this segment was pretty good. She rated it a four out of five Robert's Dex. What did she like more about this one than she did about the last one? Uh, this actually is your mom just a into mystery? the cr- oh, Okay, okay. I was gonna say, is your your mom's the true crime type? <laughs> it's actually mysterious. Well, and she thought the roommate did it. Well, that's fair. Allegedly, honestly, that's fair. Okay, so our next one's super short. It's kind of like an America's Most Wanted segment. This is the. Um, it's so fucking short considering the number of crimes that are committed. It's extremely short. So this is the Gainesville church arson. So police are searching for the person responsible for more than 26 church arson fires throughout Florida. You think if you had 26 arsons to talk about, you could come up with like a little more meat? You'd think. But this was so short. <laughs> it was just like, by the way, interviewed if you person. like churches, there's 26 less of them. <laughs> The first started in July 1990 in Jackson County. By February 1991, 11 churches were hit. By June, the total was up to 15. The fires stopped until October 24th, 1991, when the arsonist attacked the First Baptist Church of Ocala. Ocala. Sure. Several other church fires occurred around the same time. Damage estimates are close to $8 million. Uh, all we get from this mystery is a lot of footage of burned down churches and like a police officer saying like how important churches are. Uh, so they're looking for whoever did this. Fortunately, no one is hurt. Yes. This is a very skillful arsonist and the buildings are damaged, but no people are hurt. Yeah. After the fires in October 1991, a police task force was set up comprised of federal, state, and local investigators. In November 1991, the Westwood Hills Church of God was set on fire in Gainesville. Fortunately, no one has been killed or seriously injured during these fires. The arsonists remained at large at the time of the broadcast. Um, they did figure out who did this. So on November 13, 1991, a Tennessee man named Patrick Lee Frank was arrested for loitering. After his arrest, no more church fires occurred, which made people very suspicious. Under questioning, he confessed to setting several church fires in Florida, Tennessee, and Colorado. He claimed that churches caused him to steal and commit crimes, but investigators learned that he had been sexually abused by a church member as a child. He was charged with 15 of the fires. However, in July 1993, he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was... um, institutionalized in a mental hospital for 15 years before being released in 2008. Okay. Um, this is seriously the shortest mystery you've ever seen in your life. It's like a pamphlet. Yeah, that's it. It's like, did you know that sometimes churches burn down? We wish we knew who did it. Goodbye. 
my mom said that they should look for someone who goes north during the summer months because there was a pause in the Florida bombings. It turns oh, out yeah. he's like a snow bunny, just he's, an arsonist. <laughs> he was an arsonist snow bunny, but it turned out he was kind of traveling around before between a few states and they were only looking at the patterns of Florida, but she was kind of right. She said it was not at all mysterious or interesting. It and not enough info wasn't. for an, an update and that they were no good fashions. There was like a graphic of Florida with all these fires all over it. It yeah, reminded me pretty great graphic. If you've ever actually. seen that meme of all the like dumpster fires, it's like a news clip. Yes, yeah. It's just like dumpster fire, dumpster fire, dumpster fire. <laughs> all these arrows pointing to this like one area. That's kind of what it looked like, but it's all it's of all, Florida all and Florida. it's all on fire. It did kind of look like all of Florida was burning. Yeah. Uh, my mom rated this two out of five, Robert Stacks. I agree with your mom. Not at all interesting or mysterious. No. Then we get a very unnecessary update on the Teresa and Paul Stamper case. Paul was an absolute dirtbag who didn't terrorized his wife and shot a guy. But we already know all this, and we didn't need it again. You're wasting our time. We could have had a whole other arson We mystery. could have talked about several of these churches that burned down. Seriously, we could have gotten some information, but no. And now we move on to Samantha's favorite kind of segment. Ugh. Her absolute favorite in Ugh. all of the world. Guess what it is, folks? It's Ugh. treasure. God damn it. Yes. I almost fell off my chair laughing at the introduction for this, where Robert Sack waxes very poetic. Oh my god, while the flute music plays? About that the desert is where secrets can be hidden among the sage and something, something. And he refers to the Southwest as nearly uninhabitable. <laughs> And then I nearly fell off my chair laughing. It's just a wasteland, Liz. Didn't she know that? Uh, rude. Can't People sustain do life. live there, Robert Stack. And have lived there for a long time. Yeah. But anyway, this is about some stupid treasure. It's not the dumbest treasure we've had, but... Well, it's a low bar, but... Yeah. I wrote down the phrase, born from a conspiracy of greed. Okay, I don't know why I thought that was so interesting. I'm sure it's a Robert's Dad quote. Yeah, so this is the Trabuco mystery, or the Trabuco treasure, and it is located near Farmington, New Mexico. Shout out to everyone at Farmington. How do you habit it? No one knows. <laughs> Not Robert Stack, at least. So Shout back- out to the prairie dogs that live in Farmington. <laughs> hi, pr- hi, Farmington. How are you? So in 1933, Leon Trabuco was a Mexican millionaire. He is wearing like a fine-ass suit in this mystery, by the way. Yeah, he is. And he believed he could use the Great Depression in the U.S. to increase his fortune. He was interested in taking advantage of the devaluated dollar and skyrocketing gold prices. So him and four other men bought up as much gold in Mexico as they could to smuggle into the U.S. and then resell it when the price skyrocketed. So they had a makeshift foundry in Mexico where you see them like melting down like jewelry and coins and shit so that it was just cast into ingots. Okay. Okay. In three months, him and his partners collected almost 16 tons of gold, which does seem like an awful lot. It's a lot. And then they were smuggling that gold into the united states on a plane like one ton at a time because i think that's what the plane could handle and he was then searching for a safe place to hide his treasure and we see him like being shown a warehouse by a realtor and he's like no i need something more secluded which is not suspicious at all definitely not so then he decided it would be quote smarter to bury the gold Always. Said no one ever. This is always, 
always smart. So in the heat of summer, he hired a pilot named Red Moser to make several covert flights from New Mexico. That's a fake-ass name if I've ever heard one. (laughs) To make flights into New Mexico, into the desert, so the gold could be buried. It was believed that Trabalco chose a sparsely populated region, which is basically north of where Farmington is today. One might call it uninhabitable. Yeah, uninhabitable. It was by a Navajo reservation. Um, Oh, you mean people have lived there for centuries? It's so uninhabitable. There's people there. Weird. So, um, supposedly, Trabuco never revealed this location that he decided to bury the gold and also would not create a map, except later people were theorizing that people were guarding it, so I don't understand how that could be true. But unfortunately, the Gold Act of 1934 made private ownership of gold illegal. Mm. So he missed his chance to sell the gold. Gotcha. So um, he just stays buried. Over the years, Harris and him and his partners all died untimely deaths. And supposedly he took the location of the gold to his grave. Well, that means that that treasure was cursed. But I was also like, it's still fucking gold. And Mexico is not that far away. Just fucking take it back. <laughs> There's no reason it has to stay buried for the rest of his life. Yeah, take it, sell it in Mexico. Yeah, it didn't become worthless in Mexico. You just thought it would be worth more in the U.S., so you smuggled it in. There's no reason you can't smuggle it right back out. (laughs) Anyway, then we hear from a treasure hunter named Ed Foster, who has been searching in the desert near Farmington for over 35 years. Ed, look, I'm not going to knock anyone's hobby, but... But also get a better hobby. You've, have you found any gold in 34 years? <laughs> maybe. No, maybe you should take up knitting. Maybe he just wanted to walk around, but they hadn't invented Fitbits yet. And he he was like, no, it has to be productive. He needs a reason to walk. Yeah. Get a dog. Yeah. Walk your dog around. I don't know. <laughs> he was convinced that he found the 1933 landing strip used by Red Moser at a plateau called the Congra Mesa. He also went to the reservation and bugged some people, which seemed kind of rude, including a Navajo woman who, when she was six years old in 1993, recalled that a plane would regularly land and take off from there. That means nothing. That doesn't mean it's this dude and his gold. Woman saw plane. That's your evidence. <laughs> And then he starts talking about how some people were living at the reservation, and it would have been unusual for, like, a white guy and a Mexican guy to be there at all, which, I don't know, you're fucking there. <laughs> you're a white guy. I guess it's years later, but a tale as old as white people. White people go in where they're not wanted. <laughs> the, the story. Uh, then we see this house that he's, like, insisting is incongruous with houses on a Navajo reservation and looks like it's Mexican. I'm sure. Okay. But that doesn't mean it's these people. There could be (laughs) numerous explanations for that. He's just, this is such a case of like, you're just seeing what you want to see. Yeah. And then at some point he like finds this rock that someone has carved 1933 16 ton on and he thinks that the gold is hidden somewhere within the triangle of the <laughs> right three, under that rock three points of this mexican style house the landing strip and this rock and then Just i was like three random plate p- points and he was like the gold could be hidden away somewhere in the vicinity of these three points and i was like how hilarious would it be if it turned out i carved 1933 <laughs> 16 ton on that rock because literally anyone could have done that <laughs> It's just graffiti. Yeah. Don't carve things on rocks, also. Rude. Yeah. Okay. And then we hear from this professional treasure hunter named Norman Scott, who says that this story has a, quote, air of authenticity to it. 
and that like 90% of the stories he hears are clearly BS, <laughs> which I think is hilarious that he's a professional treasure hunter, and like, most of the oh, time- this is bullshit. People are telling him stuff, and he's like, yeah, that's not true, dude. <laughs> um... And well, my thinks, career is based off lies, but... Yeah, and then they talk about how with technology, it is only a matter of time before it's discovered. <laughs> well, that didn't turn out to be true. Guess what has not been <laughs> discovered? Oh, yeah, this treasure. Look, I I believe that these guys smuggled some gold in the U.S. Yeah. I don't believe that they buried it and then just literally left it and then died. Well, owning gold's illegal now. I guess the gold we illegally smuggled into the United States has There's to stay in the There's nothing we ground. can do. We can't take it anywhere else. Obviously, we'll just let 16 tons of gold There's sit in the desert. There's never a black market for things that are illegal, so... And I guess we we'll wouldn't know anyone on the black market. I We're only we'll illegal smugglers. It's gotta stay in and the dirt. And they're crime bosses! Uh, sure spent a lot of time smelting down that gold. I for no reason. Darn, it's illegal uh, now, I should have just kept the jewelry. Go home, My go wife would have liked it. Guys, it's illegal now. Go home. What go, are, go what are we men if we do not follow the law? <laughs> They said, and then they keeled oh. over dead. <laughs> um, <laughs> Basically, how the story went. I have to say that the guy they have reenacting Leon Trabuco, one of the most stylish men we've seen on Unsolved Mysteries, who's not Robert Stack. That's true. He looked great. <clears throat> Even if he didn't spend that gold, he was doing well. Sure. Uh, yeah, this is fucking unsolved as shit. <laughs> Except it's not there. It's gone. It's no. fucking unsolved People as shit. St- Spend money. I don't know. <laughs> People can just leave it places. If you even when they get windfalls of money, it's not like they're like. And then they decided to become monks, and they <laughs> never bought anything. Like it's gone. It's gone by now. That was a long time ago, and it's gone. Yeah. Uh, what oh, did wait. your mom think of this one? Oh uh, yeah, she was not a fan. Let me see what she said. <laughs> Yeah, she basically said that they would have taken it back to Mexico, and she gave it a 2.5 out of 5 Robert Stacks. <laughs> okay. I think I've already uh, mentioned all of her complaints in my long rant. I agree with all of them. Okay. We're done. That's done. Does it seem that's like I should be done? Sorry. That's fucking it. That's episode. it. It's a whole episode. That's all they gave us. Goddamn. All right. Should we read it? <laughs> I guess. We had your mom's readings. But yeah. yeah. How mysterious do you think this is? My mom gave it a thumbs down and I do too. I agree. Not very mysterious Not at all. Not mysterious at all. I, I think Jeffrey's case is kind of mysterious, but you almost like don't have enough to go on. It doesn't carry the whole episode. No. So thumbs down. Uh, reenactments? Oh, that's the thing I forgot to ask her. I knew I was forgetting something. Actually, I feel like they're fine. Sideways. Unremarkable. They're okay. Nothing Mm, to write home about. Fashion. I think I know how your mom rated this Uh, one. High thumbs up. Yeah. We get some great retro fashions in the first segment, and I actually like some of the fashions in the treasure segment. So, yeah. It was not High thumbs. Uh, Arson and uh, Jeffrey's case. uh, No. No fashion. burger. No. Robert Stack... Uh, he's surprisingly <laughs> consistent. He does wear a double-breasted suit better than most. So I guess he gets a thumbs up. Actually, I would give it, my mom gave him a sideways. I'm going to give him a thumbs up for his ridiculous talking about hiding shit in the desert and how how like basically just the existence of sand is mysterious to him. Well, and also it's very you can't live there. It's, yeah. That it's where things go to die is his sure. description of the sure. Southwest. Well, flute music plays. Yeah. So, yeah. actually, I give that a thumbs up. That was very entertaining to me. 
All right. What's your overall rating? I feel like it's very forgettable. I feel like in a couple episodes, we're not going to remember this at all. I want to say my overall rating is like 2.5 Robert Stacks. I would have to agree. I'm taking uh, yeah, a cue from your mom and going with 2.5. I think it's just... Blah. Blah. I, th- I the like... First, the last level was really good, but I think you're exactly right. If it was in a better episode, I would be stoked on it. But it's, this was just boring. You're right. It's the same thing with Jeffrey. It can't carry the weight. It needs support of better mysteries. Mm-hmm. It's not an episode in and of itself. No. And the stupid arson thing is too short, and then we get this totally unnecessary update, and the whole thing is just yeah, kind of a nap. I agree. Yeah, that's where I would leave it. Thanks for your help, well, Mom. That, that wraps up. Yeah, thanks, Liz's mom. <laughs> I love your new hair, by the way. Yeah, it looks great. You're rocking it. Um, should we move on to recommendations? I suppose we should. What do you have? I have a book recommendation today. Ooh, okay. It's a book that's been on my mind a lot. I All read right. it maybe five years ago. It's called On the Beach by Neville Shute. Okay. Shute. Shoot. 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 Sure. S-H-U-T, if you're looking it up. I'm sure there's not another Neville Schutt. You should be able to find it. Um, This is a book that came out, I just learned, in 1957. It is a post-apocalyptic book in which... Ooh, I love that. I know. That's why I brought it. I wonder why I would be thinking about this now. (laughs) That's the real mystery. Why would I be thinking about this very... Oh, I should tell you extremely depressing one of the most depressing books i've ever read and yes that's saying a lot uh it is the story in which there is another nuclear war in which i think i don't even remember who cares right countries blow each other up there's a big nuclear war there's a big nuclear fallout this is the story of people in melbourne waiting for the fallout to come to them for their inventional deaths. That's cheery. (laughs) Delightful. It is people literally knowing that they only have a matter of time until they die and how they should choose to spend that time of their last remaining days on a ruined planet. I like it. (laughs) I like reading depressing shit. I I thought you might be interested in it. You get like a few different perspectives of different characters and sort of how they react to this information and sort Mm -hmm. of what is important to them and what they would be interested in doing in their final days. You get one person with a family. You get a bachelor. You get someone who's underwater in a submarine. Um. And it's just, yeah, them waiting for the inevitable end as a as a real, but theirs is coming faster. Uh, it's something that comes up in my mind a lot. It's kind of a subtle book, because it's really just people waiting. Okay, interesting. So it's kind of lo- surprisingly low-key for a... Uh, Do you get a climax where it is the... Is that the end of the book, or is that... Do you get the aftermath, or is that a spoiler? It's all aftermath. Oh, okay. You get sort of, I don't even know if they count as flashbacks, but you slowly learn information about uh, the war and what's gotcha. happened and blah, blah, blah. But the book itself is the, the main plot or the mm. main substance of the book is just the aftermath of the war and how individual people react to knowing that the world is over okay. and that their time is pretty much done and what is important to them to do in their their last oh, that's really time on earth it is a i think very creatively thought out book yeah and it's something yeah that just 
probably will haunt me forever. Okay. Highly recommend. Uh, as I was just looking up, basically, I just kind of wanted to know when this was published. So I looked it up on Wikipedia and um, it's kind of interesting. This is written by a British author who had immigrated to Australia and then was sort of reacting to World War II in this book. Um, and then, of course, because it's Wikipedia, people are like, well, this isn't really what would happen <laughs> after <laughs> this is the internet. I was like, well, it's, it's 50, fiction. It's fiction. It's also 57. Yeah. Like people's concepts of how nuclear anything worked was a little yeah. bit limited. Right. And so I think he was using the best science available at the time to say, like, if there's a huge nuclear war and it's like, well, there's no nuclear winter. It's like, that's all theoretical. We don't even know anyway. <laughs> and the world's going to end. Yeah. So anyway, this book, On the Beach, Neville Chut. Solid recommendation. Check it out. I love post-apocalyptic If you fiction. are willing to be depressed as hell. That something about the fall makes me want to read depressing shit. I get that. Like it's an I, overcast I, day. Yeah, I pick up horror novels. I'm I'm rereading. Uh, this isn't my recommendation, but I'm rereading Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson, which is a long ass book. It's like 900 pages, Whoa. but it's also about the end of the world, and then it's also about people who know the end of the world is coming. Basically, the moon blows up and Ooh. sets in motion a series of events that basically means they have two. The whole world is two years until everything ends uh and they have to prepare to like send humanity into space uh yeah and i reread that book last year on the same exact time so i think I, I totally get just suddenly yeah feeling like i don't know yeah you want to read about the world ending because i don't know why it's, anything, it's a little close i don't know home. why that would bring anything up for you samantha yeah strange so i don't really have a recommendation i guess this is a pseudo recommendation. I just want to tell you about a book I'm reading right now. Sure. Which normally when I recommend books, I recommend like, yeah, my favorites, like five star books. This isn't my favorite. I'm not quite done with it. But I just thought I'd talk about a book I'm reading right now that is interesting. It's called uh, So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John oh, Robinson. Yes. I've been meaning to read this. So it's actually pretty good. He wrote The Psychopath Test, which I don't really have any desire to read, but it was a number, like a New York Times bestseller. Yeah. Lots of people really loved it. Um, but this intrigued me. Um, this is about, so I'll read you the, the description of the book. Uh, for the past three years, John Ronson has traveled the world meeting recipients of high profile public shamings. The shamed are people like us, people who say, uh, who say made a joke on social media that came out badly or made a mistake at work. Once their transgression is revealed, collective outrage circles with the force of a hurricane and the next thing they know they're being torn apart by an angry mob jeered at demonized sometimes even fired from their jobs so he basically sets out to interview people who have been publicly shamed to kind of explore not really the psychology of public shaming because he doesn't go that deep into it he kind of talks about the history like there was a time in history where people would be publicly punished Right. You would be whipped through the streets or whatever, but that, like, went away in the 1800s. So why now are we having this, like, he calls it a renaissance of public shaming on the, I mean, obviously the internet is fueling it. Um, He talks about high profile cases of public shaming. So people that have been caught plagiarizing, people who've made racist jokes on the internet. Um, He interviews them, which I didn't realize he got that in depth when I picked up the book. 
Um, so it's interesting. He also hunts down people who like initiated the shamings. So he talks to a man who like made like an inappropriate sexual joke at a tech conference. And not only does he talk to him, but he tracks down um, the woman who like hmm. sent the first tweet. Um, and how, you know, how the, there was fallout for her in addition to fallout for him. Um, overall, it's just a, a interesting book. I don't know that I totally, like, agree with his thesis entirely. Okay. I'm not yeah. sure. It, I'm not reading this to, like, tease out a nuanced opinion about public shaming, but I do think he takes, uh, people a little bit too much at their word. I can see that. He interviews a lot of people who've been publicly shamed and he just sort of accepts their like, like, no, I didn't, I didn't mean it to be racist. I meant it to be this. And I just think there's, but this did is you probably though? not true. Yeah. Right, yeah. So that I don't like, but I mean, what is he going to do? Just flat out be like, no, you're lying. You can't, you can't prove that. But did you know you're actually the product of a white supremacist society and you probably <laughs> were being racist? Yeah, ab- they absolutely were being racist. Uh, but I thought so far I'm enjoying it. It, it. Honestly, so I'm listening to the audiobook and one of the reasons I wanted to recommend it is because it, it listen like it listens. It sounds like a podcast. Okay. It's John Ronson himself narrating it, and he's Welsh and has just the most oh, delightful nice. accent. Lovely. And it sounds like a one-person podcast, essentially. Like a one-person investigative podcast, if that's something you're into. If you don't typically read nonfiction, I think you would like this, if that's the kind of podcast you enjoy, because it's what it sounds like. From the very first day that we made a podcast, I've been convinced this is going to happen to us. So that was what I was going to say. You might become a little paranoid, because... Since I started reading this book, I just keep thinking about how easy it is for strangers on the internet to just fucking ruin your life. Now, I don't think we're going to accidentally tweet something racist, so we're probably pretty safe. But there's a lot of instances where people get publicly shamed because the the collective outrage is indiscriminate, right? Sure. It's n- people don't it can have- be directed at different things, yeah. sort of by whim. People don't have a nuanced take. Typically, it's just collective outrage to take someone down. And I feel like since he wrote that, it's just gotten bigger and bigger. Like, we have this whole cancel culture thing, which I don't know that John Ronson was aware of at the time or was as big at the time this book was published. So it's just a topic that I'm I'm interested in. And yeah, I do. We'll probably get think canceled the- tomorrow. So I apologize in advance that you took offense to whatever it is that I said. <laughs> That you wouldn't salute the flag or whatever. Yeah. Oh, that is it. <laughs> That's gonna What's be What's so funny is that Max saw that coming. Yeah. I, I guess being a woman on the internet is often terrible, and so I suppose I expected more flack than we've gotten. I think I agree. That, well, first of all, our listeners tend to be very cool. Extremely. Nice, chill people who are not out to ruin our lives, so thank you for that. But... Yeah, I guess I am a little paranoid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so. I'm, yeah, it's, it would be surprisingly easy for the internet to, to ruin us. But it, in the grand scheme of, like, how many people are on the internet, how many people have gone through this public shaming thing, very small. I also think the problem with talking about, and this isn't specific to that book, but, like, cancel culture stuff is, like, those people's lives aren't actually ruined. You know what I mean? Like, they right. usually keep working... Like, yeah, they usually still get a Netflix special. Like, the internet gets really mad for, like, 
a few weeks. And then forgets about it. And then those people are still millionaires or whatever. Right. Or sword and scale continues to exist. You know what I mean? And the thing that, you know, he is primarily... What's interesting is that not in every case, but in most cases in his book, he's talking about relatively average people that got publicly shamed. Like, maybe they have 100 Twitter followers. Right. Um, And then suddenly... Something Suddenly, just blows up. They say up. something and all of Twitter hates them. Um, what he, at least not yet, he did talk about one prominent author um, who was taken down by like a plagiarism scandal, but the like like the youtube thing like when a youtuber says something racist and then suddenly everyone cancels them like that's sort of a different type of public shaming that he doesn't cover in the book and i would be really interested in reading a book about that i feel like it's a little new maybe someone's out there working on it i don't know but that is something i'd be like the whole like apology video like all of that right that like formulaic youtube i guess i didn't realize that this was more just regular people so that's it kind primarily of, is. That's kind of interesting. Okay. Sort of. I mean, there's there's a race car driver I just got to. Uh, so it's it's a mix. Okay. But it's a different type of public shaming than what typically happens when we talk about cancel culture. Okay. Um, that it, makes sense. It's not like, yeah, a beauty guru on YouTube. At least not yet. I'm not done with the book. Well, I have like two maybe hours Maybe they shouldn't left. be so racist. That's, well, a, that's a hot tip. Here's the here's the thing. Maybe you shouldn't be racist. Maybe that's, you shouldn't say racist things on the internet. And maybe you won't have to apologize for them later. It's like, I, a, it's yeah. like a handy quick tip. It's I, a life hack. I do think John Ronson has more sympathy for some of the people in this book than I have for them. But That means I would have even less, I have to say. It's still an interesting As book. As someone who... Maybe sometimes gets in an internet fight. Occasionally. Yeah. Follow us on Twitter. Perhaps it's you. <laughs> Liz is fighting with people on Twitter all the time. If it's something you enjoy, go check it out. <laughs> you know, I used to be like, Liz, that's pointless. Don't do that. Da da da. And then eventually I went, the world's ending. And I want to fight with people on Twitter. Sure. So that's me on the beach. <laughs> that's how I wanted to spend those last few hours. It's going. I hope that person falls in a well and never gets out. <laughs> yeah. That's, oh, that's my good. God. All right. Let's, speaking of Twitter, let's plug, plug our shit. Yes. So. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and perhaps it's you. If you want to see me fight with people, Twitter is the place to Check be. it out. If you want to see me post a picture of every polar water I drink, that in- Instagram is for no, you. No, different social media platforms work better for different things. I, I'm not going to get into Instagram fights. I've never even heard of that. I know. So, yes. Uh, we also have a website, perhaps it's you.com. You can listen to that episodes there you could also submit a spooky paranormal tale something that's happened to you or something that relates to the show we'll collect all of those listener stories for the end of the season yes so you could email us at perhaps it's you podcast at gmail.com uh if you have a few extra dollars to throw our way patreon.com slash perhaps it's you is where you can find bonus content you can find uh coloring sheets every month if you pay a little bit of money you can join our lenny briscoe fan club and contribute money towards bully sticks for the dogs yes and the photos of lenny briscoe are in so those will be going out shortly if you are at that patreon tier that's two dollars a month sign up now is that, uh, all, is that everything that's everything we have to plug oh i am still pl- if you saw the post in our facebook group i'm still planning on doing a how far is tattoo far watch party Ooh, that's gonna be fun i'm thinking we should maybe do it next week we'll see we, okay. do, we have to look at the calendar uh but we are definitely going to be watching some youtube clips by some i mean a lot of youtube clips of how far is tattoo far because there are new episodes and they are wild 
Oh, I have one update thing. This only relates to you if you're in the Twin Cities area, but I'm going to be at Twin Cities Zine Fest later this month. It is Saturday the 21st at the Central Downtown Library, and it is free, and you could come see me. And I will even bring stickers for the perhaps it's you listeners. If you see Liz, if mention you the see podcast. Liz, mention the podcast. You could get a sticker. How about that? That's pretty exciting. Yes, I think that's everything. I think so. I think that we were surprisingly consistent, <laughs> as always. All right, bitches, go solve a mystery. Bye. Get publicly shamed. Don't do that. <laughs> don't publicly shame us either. Oh yeah, don't do that, please. Please. I'm actually very fragile. I'm Thank you. you. Bye. <laughs>